and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is actor and director Keith Gordon. Now, Keith is probably best known for portraying Ronnie Dangerfield's son, Jason, in Back to School. Of course, we talk about that iconic movie. But Keith is also an accomplished film television director, having directed Waking the Dead, The Chocolate War, The Singing Detective. For television, he just directed so many great shows. Dexter, Rectify, Master of Sex, Nurse Jackie, Homeland, Leftovers, Better Call Saul, Fargo, Legion, to name a few. We touch on a bunch of those. And of course, we talk about the Dexter finale, which he didn't direct, but he gives his thoughts on it and we dive way deep into Keith's acting career and we talk about a TV movie that he did with George Clooney. It's a pretty interesting movie and um, he was even surprised I asked about it. Here's my conversation with Keith. And helping me relive my youth today is Keith Gordon. Keith, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm very happy to be with you. Yeah, so before, you know, well, we'll touch upon everything, you're acting, directing, but I'll kind of jump all over the place here. But one of my favorite movies that you directed is Waking the Dead. And every time I watch it, it just, it sticks with me and it's like so haunting. And I always get somewhat depressed after watching it. Uh, maybe you can help me overcome that a little bit. Um, Jennifer Connelly, I would assume that she really was dead at the end, huh? trying to give too neat an answer to the question and and basically there were very different points of view even among those of us who made the film and it was sort of important to me that you know Jennifer was able to have her point of view that Billy was able to have his point of view um, you know I don't think there's a right answer and I think that's kind of the point in a funny way um, you can absolutely build base either way um, and we tried very hard to design it and write it, perform it, everything in a way that left that open. I mean, I will say that Jennifer definitely felt she wasn't dead. Okay. And she said, I can't, she said, I can't play a dead person. She said, it doesn't mean, it's not real. I, I can't be a ghost. It's like too much of a cartoon. And I said, let me, you know, from my point of view, I'm here. And I absolutely thought that was the right choice for her to make. Right. Um, in terms of the film, you know, I, in my heart, yeah, I lean towards the explanation, the idea that she's dead and that and that this is about his emotional journey. But I certainly don't disagree with somebody who doesn't do it that way. Like, I have people that are very close in my life, including half of people who worked on the movie, who don't see that. Right. I don't think, like, I'm right and they're wrong. Um, because the film is about a question, really. It's about that. It's about that question of what is, you know, what what is the meaning of a life? And, 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 and what is life? And is, is life, you know, our, our corporeal presence? Or is it life what we do and how we affect everybody around us, um, you know, but, but, but I, it's funny because I never think of the movie as depressing. I think of it as sad and right. I felt that way about the book. I mean, the book had me one right. first weeping like a lunatic, but, <laughs> but in the end, it's still a very positive book about life and about the, the permanence of, of love and how even if we lose people in our lives, they really are part of us and, and they change who we are and that reality makes it more than just a hallmark card that they're always with us because they are literally always with us because they change. If somebody you love deeply, a, a lover, a, a parent, a child, a best friend, they change, they change who you are in the deepest of ways. And in that way, they're part of you forever. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. And I just, I mean, 
there are certainly you know positives taken out of the movie. I just want to make it seem like you're gonna hang you know the noose over, you know around your neck after watching it, but. You know, it's just, and you know, and like there are, you know, it's it's good that it's left open, you know, but I, I figured I'd just try to get an answer, you know, from you, see see if I, I can try, but you know, <laughs> no success there. <laughs> well, I know, and, and look, I mean, yes, I gave you my answer. It's just right. important for me that people see the movie go. That's not meant to be. So here's the solution, you know, and and I think it's really it's 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 because it's sort of you know to me, a lot of my favorite movies and what I try to do when I make a movie is that I think. Good movies are often kind of like a Rorschach test. And, you know, I think a movie, your experience of a movie, for anybody watching it, is half the movie, but it's also half who you are. Right. And what you bring to the movie. And that can be a, that can lead to very different experiences of a story. And, in fact, even in your own life, I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience I've had. I might see a movie 20 years later, and what I feel about the film might be completely different. And not because the film is different, but because I'm different. I've grown up, I've changed, I've evolved, I've had good things happen, bad things happen. And I think that's really part of any art form, but particularly movies because they're very alive. Um, I feel like half of one's reaction to a movie is one's own own heart and what you bring to it. And so that's why I feel like there's no such thing as a right answer to uh, a film that asks a question. You know, whether it's something like Waking the Dead that's more emotional or something 2001 that is intellectual. But, but I think those films are sort of, again, about the questions and about where you meet the movie. It sounds like it sounds a little heady and pretentious. I don't mean it to, but but I do actually do think it works that way. Oh no, not at all. I mean, you're you're absolutely right there. Um, now that movie came out almost twenty years ago. Can you go out, go back to movies he directed, like even the Chocolate War, which is like thirty years now? Go back and kind of pick up on something that you wish you would have done in that movie, or something that you see there. It's like I like, I dislike, or does your whole attitude towards that movie change well it's funny well, it, was, it wasn't 30 years ago yet because I would have that would, it was actually it was 30 years ago my god wow yeah. okay I was thinking I was, no I would have been I would have been I would have been 17 it's like no I'm 57 not 47 right, right. sorry yeah, years ago. <laughs> well I'm gonna go I'm gonna go kill myself now no of course but it is fun every time I watch a movie I made or frankly a movie I acted in before that or a movie I was involved with in any way I have a different experience, which again speaks to that thing of how we go through changes. I've seen War, you know, well, probably every five to ten years I end up seeing it because it's it's screened somewhere that I go to do a Q&A session or I show it someplace to a class. or And, I, you know, sometimes I'll see it and I'll go, I'm really proud of that movie. And that was a really good first movie. And sometimes I'll see it and go, I'm so embarrassed I can't even begin to stand it. It's like, what was I thinking? And I'm terrible. And... And again, none of that is right or wrong. It just has to do with what I'm, where I am at the moment. I mean, I can, I can get a little more and see that there are things about that movie I think are really good. There are things about that movie that are like, oh, okay, that was the first movie, and I was a little over the top or a little on the nose or a little. Um, but they're all true. I mean, I, I had an amazing time making it. I learned a lot. There's a lot of things I'm proud about, and there's some things that you know definitely was a first film. And, and um, you know, uh, some of the, some of the fantasy stuff doesn't work for me as well as I wish it did. And there are all sorts of rough edges. But I also feel like, hey, we had no money, and we were basically a bunch of kids just diving in and making a movie the best that we could. And and I, I feel like, yeah, given given all things, I'm I'm pretty happy with how it came out. But it's but again, depends on what day you catch me at. You know, whether I stand and watch it and cringe and embarrass, or whether I go, hey, wow, I'm, I'm pretty proud about that. Right. And a lot of the movies you made have been like you know, low budget, like indie films. Do you prefer to make those over the big blockers? I'm sure, you know, having a budget, 
you know, that you don't have to really fight for. It helps. But do you prefer to have those kind of like uh, small indie films? Well, I mean, I've never made a blockbuster type movie, but I actually never had the desire to make one. Um, you know, it's, I mean, the reality about filmmaking is there's pretty much a one-for-one correlation. The more money you spend, the more people you're going to have to answer to and the more people you're going to have to listen to about changes in the movie and who you can put in the movie and how you edit the movie. And so, you know, you for everything of more budget that you get and it does buy freedom and all that, you also give up another kind of freedom and you give up another kind of control. So I love... You know, that when I do an indie film, I have more flexibility and I don't have to only cast whoever's the hottest actor at that moment, whether or not they're the right person, that I don't have to force a happy ending on when it doesn't, isn't the right thing. Um, so for me, I'd rather make that kind of a movie. I'd rather have less money to work with and have to be clever about the budget and not have to compromise the story I'm telling. Um, but that's me. It's also it's such a personal thing. I mean, I... I I also could see why somebody else would go, man, I want to make, you know, a huge science fiction epic and I'm going to need a hundred million dollars and sure I'll have to fight things and I'll have to deal with the studio, but that's the movie I make. And, you know, I think a lot of it's what you're drawn to and I tend to be drawn to somewhat smaller, more, more intimate stories. So that fits with being able to do them for not a ton of money. And with that, with not doing it for a ton of money, I get a little bit more freedom to do it the way I think is the right way. So what first drew you to become a director? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, before I ever was an actor, I was, I was one of those kids running around with a Super 8 camera, you know, making movies with my friends. I, I know that most of you audience won't know what a Super 8 camera is. It's a, it's a thing before they were video cameras. Right. <laughs> they these things, and they had these little things of film, and they went through it. Actually, was you could touch it. It was film. Um, but so when I was a kid, you know, I would do that. I would make, like, great Bradbury stories or whatever with my friends, or we did a spoof of, like, of, like um, uh, beauty pageants or, you know, and we would just, you know, kind of never finish them. They'd be, like, half-done messes and... Um, but so that was... I was a kid who was more interested in some ways in filmmaking than I was in acting. And then acting was something I sort of lucked into through a series of fluky things. And it was great. But I sort of went into acting with the idea of, well, I'd my fantasy would be one day to get back around to getting to make my own movies. And so I tried to use the time that I was acting and working with some really wonderful directors who were also, luckily for me, very kind human beings. Um, you know, I asked a lot of questions. I hung out in editing rooms. I came to the set every day, even when my character wasn't working, and watched what they were doing. And, and I tried to use my acting as like a paid apprenticeship. Um, and, you know, and, and people like Brian De Palma and John Carpenter and we became mentors and, and were very, very, very kind to me when I said, look, I want to do what you do. You know, can I ask questions? Can I look through the camera? Can I, can you, can you, do you mind explaining stuff? And, and, you know, people were very indulgent of the fact that that was what I wanted to do. Um, so I was very lucky. Um, and it just came full circle and it really never happened. I mean, it, you know, Chocolate War was, was very lucky. I caught the right piece of material at the right moment. Um, and I've never had a movie be easy to get made of that, which is ironic because it was the first one. But because it was a book that had sold north of a million copies and yet could be made very inexpensively, and this was at a time that, that VHS tapes were wholesaling for 89 bucks a piece, and there were like 10,000 mom and pop stores around the country. It wasn't too hard to convince an investor that, hey, if I make this really small, you can't lose money. 
um, because people know the book and I could make a terrible movie and you'd still, you know, end up in profits. And that was, that was a pretty convincing argument. And that just had to do with that particular piece of material and that particular piece of how the finances of the movie business were working. And so that movie was the easiest far of all the movies I made to get to make. So would like the seeing detective that be one of like the most like difficult because of you know having you know the TV show before that and all the other stuff? Well, seeing detective was it was it was a, a, a different situation. That was the only feature I made that I didn't develop. I was actually brought into that film very late in the game, so I didn't go through with that film the terrible struggle of trying to get it made, although there had been other people going through the terrible struggle of trying to get it made for years. I mean, there were a lot of incarnations of that film announced over the over the years, and you go back through, I probably see Google it, you can find some of them. I mean, there was a Bob Rafelson, Dustin Hoffman version, and there was an Anthony Hopkins version, and there was... I believe a Jack Nicholson version, and there was, I mean, they were all much bigger, big, you know, they were like pull-out studio movies with big budgets, and and then what finally happened was that Mel Gibson had always loved the material, and I think he wanted to play the part himself originally, and he bought it, the, you know, he took over the option, and pretty quickly realized that this is an experimental movie, and what made the original series great was how far out there it was, and no studio is going to make it, or if they do make it, they're going to demand it be so unweirded and, and turned into more something more normal that it wouldn't be the material anymore. Right. So he was the one who kind of said, yeah, I want to do this, and I want to do it as an independent movie. Um, and then he kind of, at that point, he was very close friends with Robert Downey and kind of thought, you know, Robert's sort of perfect for this role and, and maybe even more right than I am. And, and he brought Robert in, and they had had another director that they were working with, and who will go nameless because you know I'm not throwing somebody else into the bus right. or something I wasn't there but, but somebody who's used to working with more money and they got very convinced they couldn't do it on the kind of budget that Mel wanted to do it on so they parted ways and then at that point I guess it was Robert I assume because we knew each other from back in our acting days and had brought me up as somebody that was used to working with small budgets and that he thought might be a good fit as it happens, I'm like a huge Dennis Potter fan, and I actually read the script several times over the years and been able, even unable to get a meeting when it was going to be at a big studio, and they weren't interested in me. So it was one of those ironic pieces of karma and, and luck and fate that this thing that I'd always loved but I never thought I'd get a chance to work on pretty much fell into my lap. Um, and it was really just a matter of meeting with, with Robert and then with Robert and, and Mel and sort of talking about how I saw it, and they liked it what I had to say and, and being able to say look in the eye and say yes I can make this for like seven million dollars and I know that sounds crazy with the musical numbers and all that but I think there's ways to do it um, and you know that was sort of how that one happened so so it, it was a tortured many many years process but I didn't go through the hell of it on that one other people did all that heavy lifting right now you mentioned you know Robert probably had a hand in you know bringing you aboard now you worked with him in back to school how is it difficult to work with or direct an actor you previously acted with before? I've never found it. In fact, I've done it a few times, and I actually thoroughly enjoy it because if you work together, I mean, if you didn't like each other, it would be difficult, but then you wouldn't be working with Right, them. right. Um, but when you work with somebody that you had a, a, a positive work experience with in the past, even if it was a different dynamic, even if you actors, you know, you go in trusting each other, you go in as friends, you go in kind of knowing each other's personalities and quirks and senses of humor um you know there's always a getting to know you phase 
whenever you direct an actor, and it's always a little awkward for a while while you're kind of figuring out how you're going to work together. Every actor is so different, and what they need is so different. Um, so when you work with someone you've acted with, you've seen what works for them. You've seen what they're like on a set. You've seen what pushes their buttons and pisses them off and what makes them, you know, enjoy it. And so, you, so actually, as a director, it's, it's much easier because you, you've got a head start. Um, you know, and I did that. I've done that a few times, and I've always thoroughly enjoyed the experience about of getting to work with somebody together. Um, whether it's directing somebody more than once or acting with them and then then directing them or whatever, it, it just it just it just you know your friends are, and that that makes such a difference. Right now, was that um, correct me if I'm wrong? Was that Robert's like kind of first role after he got got clean? Yes, it was. It was as far as I know, it was sort of the first film he had done in many, many, many years without taking anything and without being on any substances. He had just gotten out of prison. He was actually on on probation when we did the film. So, you know, I mean, one of the first things I said when we got the script is, well, if you want to do this cheap, we should go to Canada because the dollar goes further there. And it's like, no, Robert's not allowed to leave the state. Right. So. You know, it was definitely something that was very present in his life, um, and and so it was. And I think it was scary for him because, you know, the, the thing when when people are are addicted to whatever it is, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's you know whatever adrenaline behavior, when you stop doing that thing, there's often artists think that oh, that's what makes me good. You know, when you meet people, you know, whether it's the classic novelist who's who drinks a lot or whatever. There's this weird thing that happens where people think, oh, my talent comes out of that self-abusive behavior. And so I think Robert had a lot of fear because he didn't have this thing that he had started to decide, I'm great because of the drugs. I, I'm, that's what makes me good at what I do. And, and so there was a lot of just letting him come to see and rediscover himself and discover that, no, your talent has nothing to do with that. that. You're so talented that you could be great in spite of that, but you're not. it wasn't what was making you great. And that was a, it was a really exciting and touching and, and kind of wonderful thing to be a, a part of watching him go through that. And it was it was challenging. I mean, he needed he just needed a lot of handholding, a lot of reassurance, a lot of a lot of patience. But but you know, he's such a talented talented man, and he's such a good guy with a big heart that it was just about kind of hanging in with him, going, I know it's scary, but you're doing great, and you know, I'm not I'm not lying to you, and I'm not telling you what you want to hear. I'm really happy with what you're doing, and I think you should be too. And, and that was a lot of what our relationship was about. It wasn't just about working on the material. It was about me making the, the set as safe and supportive a place as I could so that he could get over that kind of thing of, wow, this is different. I'm not used to doing this without the crutches. Um, but he was amazing, and, and you know, and, and, and I, I couldn't, I don't know how he could have been better. Right, and did you actually foresee him actually being one of the biggest movie stars in the world with Iron Man and all that stuff? You know, I didn't. I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled for him because I think it's something that he really wanted, and I think he's he's been amazing at it. But I always saw him as so quirky and so offbeat, and his humor is so odd. And I kind of thought he'd be more like an indie star than a mainstream star. And I, I was completely wrong, and I'm completely happy for him because I think he's he's so much more interesting than, than a lot of the mainstream stars we've had. He's got such a, a more complicated presence, and the way he brings the roles has got more spikiness and strangeness to it. So I think it's great for mainstream movies that he is a mainstream star because I think he's he's more interesting than those people sometimes are. So I think it's been great for everybody and I think he's you know from what I can gather he's really enjoying that and uh, but no I would have guessed that he would have been more 
of a, I don't know, a Sam Rockwell or somebody who's like, right. you know, kind of a, an actor that people love and admire, but wasn't like a hyper movie star. But but he, it, it's just, he's so good and he's also got so much charisma. And that is the thing that I think makes a difference with him is that, you know, he's, he's wildly talented. He does have that movie star charisma thing where he just, you know, when he's in a room, when he's on a screen, when he, your, your eyes just go to him. And I think that, that's what makes people stars, and he just has that in buckets. So looking back, it's not shocking, but it wouldn't have been what I would have guessed. Right, and especially that character, which half the movie or three-quarters of the movie, he's not even wearing a mask. So you, you want to see his face because he stands out, and he made that superhero more present than any other actor probably would have. Absolutely, and he brought that thing that he has of, you know, he has a tremendously funny sense of humor that he brings to everything, but he also has a tremendously deep vulnerability that he brings to everything, and he he has that, that rare ability to have both sides going on at once, so that he can be incredibly funny and snarky and kind of make you laugh, but he also kind of breaks your heart at the same time, and makes you care about him, even if he's being funny and snarky and like, I'm the coolest guy in the room. And that's a really hard thing to do, and I think that's what he did with those movies, is that he made Tony Stark a guy that, you know, was in a way the coolest guy in the room, but you still felt like he might be your friend. And that's a really hard, um, it's really hard to feel like both of those things at once. You know, those, those are often, like, very com- competing, and somehow, you know, Robert projects both of those at once. Yeah, it's totally, totally. But now let's get you also direct a ton of great TV shows as well, some of my favorites. Uh I know, I know Dexter, I think you directed probably, if not the most uh, episodes of any other director, right? Uh, I, think I, I think I was second. I think, okay. I, think I don't know. I, I, don't, I, have never, I don't know if I've ever looked it up, but I, I did 10 of them. Right. But I have a feeling, somebody once told me you did, uh, you did the second most Dexter, so I, I, I bet that's the truth. That's the, I can look it up on IMDb. Right. Um, but, uh, but I did do a bunch. I did do 10 of them, so... Uh, it was definitely uh, a big a big part of my life for over a few years. Yeah, now, one of my other favorite shows that a lot of people don't know about, and you actually directed the pilot, and I think you were the like, executive producer of the first season, was Rectify. And every time I yes. every time I talk to people about that show, I try to recommend it. I'm like, not that I'm getting paid for it, I just want people to watch it because it's one of the most brilliant things I've seen in the past 25 years. Yeah, no, it is, and I was very honored and happy to be a part of it, and I did do the pilot episode, and I was a co-EP on the first season, and I just was thrilled to be part of that. It's, you know, it's tough. There are shows on some of the smaller networks, like Sundance, which that was on, which just people don't know about so much. I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the best TV shows can fly a little bit under the radar. I mean, they're sort of the TV equivalent of an indie film or an off-Broadway play, Um and, you know, that it doesn't really matter in the end because Sundance, you know, the budgets are lower and, and we didn't have to have 20 million people watching for right. that show to be a quote-unquote success. It went on for, for a number of years. But, but uh, you know, that and, and that really, you know, it really goes to Ray, the, great, the creator of it. Which, right. I mean, the TV is, is ultimately all about the, the, the showrunner creator. I mean, in movies, the, the director's sort of the auteur, but in television, it's always... The, the person who writes and oversees the, the the process week after week. And that was Ray McKinnon in that case, who really just had this vision and was remarkable. And so I was very glad to get to be a part of that. Um, you know, because in television, the show is only going to be as good as that person and, and their vision. I mean, they're the person that 
they're, they're, they're the leader that you're all following. And so Ray, you know, created something remarkable. And I hope people continue to find it because I do think it's a really special piece of storytelling. And, and you know, maybe somebody will hear this and they'll watch it. It's, it's really, you know, it's really great. It's one of those things that I'm very proud to be associated with. And, I, and I've been lucky. I've worked on a bunch of TV stuff. That I that I like, I feel like yeah, I I'm glad I worked on that because it's something I would want to watch, and to me that makes all the difference. Working on something that you're not excited to be part of is always a little, you know, it's a job. It pays the rent, but when you work on Directify or Leftovers or or Fargo or Legion or you know, I mean these are things where it's like you know, Homeland. I mean I feel like. I'd watch these shows whether I work on them or not, and so that makes it much more exciting to to, to be prepared. Yeah, and all the shows you mentioned have a, a freshness about it that weren't really around before. Not the standard, you know, TV doctor, you know, detective show. They they all have like a real like freshness about it, and you know, you pick your projects pretty wisely. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I've, I've also been lucky in that I've been able to do that. I mean, I, I've, I've financially been able to do it. I've, I've made decisions in my life to keep my life rather small for by Hollywood, by Hollywood standards. I mean, I still probably live better than 99% of people on the planet. But, but in, by, you know, I do drive a 20-year-old car for a reason. Right. Um, and that's because it's brought me a certain amount of freedom where I can, I can hold out and do those things that I find really exciting instead of, oh, I just did a job. So uh, I've been able to, you know, try to work. And, and I'm also aggressive. If I like a TV show, I'll, ch- I'll chase it. I mean, the, in TV, generally, people often wait to be asked. But I, I, like with Dexter, I saw the pilot early because one of my agents thought I might like it. And I was like, you have to get me in a room with those people because I need to work on this show. And, I, and then I met with them. They're like, look, we're really flattered, but we have all our directors for the first season. And I was like, okay, I get that, that's fine, but maybe for the second season, but here's, I love it, here's why I love it, here's, and then as luck would have it, a director fell out in the first season, so I got to do one, and then suddenly I was part of their world. And that's been that way with a number of these shows where, where I kind of chased them, because I knew that it was, it was, you know, I wanted to be a part of something that seemed really special. Yeah, now, um, what, what's your thought, I mean, because I love that show, and everyone kind of is sour on the finale of the series, what are your thoughts on it? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I understand. I, I, it probably wouldn't have been the finale I would have done either. Um, I mean, I, I I don't think it was a spin against God and man that it was treated like. I mean, I think, you know, I think the reaction was a little hysterical. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do think that, that something happened with that show where, you know, my perception of it early on, and I wasn't in all the writing rooms and all that, but certainly my but I kind of, it seemed like that show was originally designed to have like a five season arc right. and was headed towards more of a definitive ending that probably would include his death, certainly would include his having to come face to face more with him, his violations of his own codes. And what happened was the show I think was way more successful than anybody was ready for. And so, you know, the network in particular did not want the show to end. But after four seasons, the guy who had been the showrunner from the beginning and who had sort of taken it through the first four seasons left, and then other people took over the show, and then that those people left. and So the show got a little bit rootless after that. And I think, you know, I think right through to its ending was sort of finding its way, but it was never quite the same as that kind of singular vision that it started with. Um, and so I understand why people frustration with it. I felt some too. I still thought it was a really interesting show that did really interesting things, and I still 
thought even the later seasons were better than a lot of other things on TV. But there was a sort of cohesiveness in the early days that I think fell apart a little bit when the decision was made to extend it for extra years and to go away from that where the original story was maybe originally heading towards. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think once a show, once you have toys and merchandise from from a TV show, it's kind of hard to cancel it on its uh, on the top of the hill, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I don't look on a commercial level. They made the right choice. The show was doing incredibly well. It was a humongously profitable show, not just in America but around the world. I mean, it, it was. I mean, uh, you know, I can't blame people who are running a network or a business for going. Listen, we're not going to kill off our, our golden goose. Um, so I don't think it was crazy, but I do think that sometimes when you make those decisions, a little bit of the vision gets lost in that process, and, and I think that's what people felt at the end maybe was that the ending didn't live up to the complexity of the show that it preceded it, and, the, and it didn't have that feeling of bringing all the elements together in, in, in a way that kind of felt like the journey it concluded. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like one of those things where I, I didn't hate the ending, but I also, I can't say, yeah, I, I don't know what people are talking about. They're all insane. Right. And especially now in the age of every TV show being rebooted with, you know, original cast and stuff like that, who knows that that show can be on Showtime within a couple of years anyway. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I, you know, there are rumors that bounce around. I, I don't know if, I, look, I don't know if, 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 I don't know if anybody would want to, to go back to it. I mean, I mean, the key, the, the, you know, the key being, you know, I don't know if any, any of the, the core creators would at this point, or if everybody's moved on. But, you know, I, 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 I'd watch. I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious to see what they would do. Yeah, so would I. I mean, someone who, who watched every episode, you know, more than once, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be up for it, too. But um, there's some other stuff. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, I don't know, for example, if, if, if Michael C. Hall would go back. There. Right. I mean, you know, we never talked about it afterwards. I mean, I, 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 I don't know if he felt, if he'd be open to that. But I, I, I'm sure on a certain level, when you pick a character for, you know, for eight seasons, I'm sure there's a certain thing, okay, I'm done with that. And especially somebody like Michael, who's got a humongous range as an actor. I mean, he's somebody who, you know, can do a lot of different things. And I think that's part of the fun for him. And so I'm sure part of him feels like I did that character, I love that character, I was really good as that character, but, you know, it's time to now do other things in my life, so, but that's me guessing, I'm not, I, I want to be clear, I'm not speaking for him, that's, that is that is not a conversation I've had with him, but I kind of wouldn't be surprised if he felt like, yeah, I did it, and we did eight years of it, and it was great, but, you know, time to, to keep stretching. Right, to totally. Now, how much fun is it working kind of like an anthology show like Fargo? Oh, well, well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's wonderful because, I mean, the two seasons that I did two episodes of, you know, each one is so different and has its own personality, and, you know, I, if, if I go back for season four, which I'm hoping I will, I assume I will, you know, that will have its own personality yet again, and, you know, a writer as good, a creator as good as Noah Hawley is going to make each one specific, and, you know, he's kind of, kind of a genius about how he makes each of these things their own unique thing and yet still keeps it connected to the core. It's like each of those seasons of Fargo were so different and yet they all had the same day, which it needs to have. It's not just arbitrary, you know, it's still it's still this language that he developed out of the Coen Brothers language. He sort of then developed his own language with it. Um, I'm really excited to see what he comes up with for the, for the fourth season. I mean, I'm kind of really, I, I, at this point, I'm as cool as everybody else, but I'm really, really curious where that goes. 
Um, but that was, I mean, that was a truly joyful show to work on. Uh, you know, between the quality of the writing, uh, the amazing cast that he put together, and it's funny because I don't know how much he thought about it consciously, but he also cast like the nicest people in the world. <laughs> right. I mean, not only are those actors great in Fargo. But they're all really cool human beings to be around and to work and be in the trenches with. Uh, you know, I didn't know. I mean, you know, you, you and McGregor could have been a schmuck or, you know, or, or Ted Danson could have been a pain in the butt. Or, and they weren't. They're, like, the nicest people ever. Like, like just everybody who, like, he cast in that series are people you'd want to hang out with. So it really made it fun. Because, look, TV's hard. It's long hours. You're trying to do quality stuff with not enough time, not enough money. you got to really kill yourself. And, you know, one or two people that could have big egos or they're difficult, it really gets a wrench on things. I mean, with a movie, you've got a little more time to deal with somebody who might be difficult. In TV, there's just no, there's no room for it. And, and the fact they put together these amazing casts, and everybody was so cool. It just, it was like being at summer camp. And then he also, Noah, you know, the director's a lot of freedom, which is interesting because he has such a strong vision. But a lot of TV shows, you know, the showrunner wants you to come in and do what they, what they have in their head. And Noah's always saying, the only way you can disappoint me is to just do what I put on paper, you know, not beyond it. Uh, I, he wants to be surprised, and he hires directors with an eye that you're going to come in and you're going to take what he wrote and, and add to it. And, and that's really fun because that's not always the case of TV. Um, and it's interesting that sometimes it's the most brave storytellers who are also brave about letting other people bring their, their contributions to it. And some of the people maybe aren't quite as great are also the most protective of It's got to be exactly the way I saw it in my head. Um, and it's some, somehow with the genius of being a visionary, also sometimes the, um, the confidence to let other people add. And that, so for a director, that's really fun. Right. Is that also a product of being like on cable or like a streaming service compared to like being on a network t TV show? Generally, yes, they are very, very different. I have not done much network, but the few times I've done network TV, I have not had very much fun. Um, network TV tends to be very bound by very strict rules of how they do things, and there's a lot of bosses. You know, in cable TV on these more kind of auteur shows, these kind of golden age of TV shows like Fargo, like Better Call Saul, like, you know, not that I ever worked on it, but like The Sopranos, or like, the, you know, I mean, you know, these shows that really have a singular vision. Um, you have one boss, you have the showrunner, and that's the only person that you're, as a director, you're really dealing with. You get into network TV, and suddenly you've got a lot of people that you're answering to, and there's a showrunner, but there's network executives, and there's other producers who have big egos, and so it gives a very crazy making, because you're, you're sort of, Every time somebody tells you we want this, somebody else says don't listen to them. No, we want this instead, and it, it's 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 very hard. And and, and also, there's much more um, obsessiveness about this is how we do things in this show. You know, we always shoot this room this way. Like like in network TV, I've often found again like in a set. In this set, we never look at this wall. We always look this way, and we don't use wide lenses. We don't. And you sort of think, okay, well then, why do you need me here? Right. Whereas in cable TV, it's all the job. It's like, look, this set, we've shot it always these other ways. Can you help us think of a new way to do it? So there's often more of a sense of we're bringing you in to help us stretch our, 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 our vision and stretch our vocabulary. And in network TV, it's like, don't mess with our vocabulary, leave it alone and do what we've done. But again, I'm sure there are exceptions. I mean, network TV is getting more and more interesting to keep up with cable. And I'm sure there are shows that aren't like that on network. 
And I'm sure there are shows on, on cable that are that are might as well be a network show in terms of the way they feel. But generally, network shows are more the good network. The good, the, I mean, good, the good cable shows are more visionary. You you have the Ray McKinnons on Rectify, or 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 the David Lindelofs on the Leftovers, or the Noah Hawleys, or you know, you have somebody who's 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 the one person you're talking to. That makes a, a universe of difference. Right, and like Vince Gilligan on Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, and. So, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, they're there, and what's so funny again? Better Call Saul is the same thing. I mean, you know, this this Gilligan and Peter Gould have really strong visions, and yet when I directed that, they wanted me to bring stuff to the table. I mean, you know, they're they again. They have that confidence, and this Gilligan doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. He knows people know how good he is. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I, they're wanting people to come in and 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 add, and so that's a whole different kind of experience. That's really fun. Right. That's when I switch over for comments to the acting. Uh, one of my favorite movies, and I watch it every time it's on. I probably have it on my DVR like four times because I always record it. It's Back to School. It's it's brilliant. It's it still holds up after thirty plus years. Uh, what were some of the your best memories of about making that movie? Well, it's funny, you know. It's it, it's it's you know. There's so many different things about making that movie that were memorable. I mean, one of the things that one of the, the two people. Feel like don't get enough credit for that movie when when people think about it. One is one is the director Alan Metter, right? Who you know had to had to come in to you know I mean Rodney was not the easiest guy to deal with. I mean he's incredibly funny, but he was also like a force of nature. <laughs> and, and Alan was brilliant at dealing with Rodney. He was brilliant at getting Rodney was very scared of being vulnerable on screen. He, Rodney didn't think anybody wanted to see him um, be anything other than just the, the, the broadly funny guy that he always had been. Right. And Alan Metter, the director, knew on some level that for this character, yes, Thornton Mellon's hysterically funny, but you got to kind of feel for the guy. And you got to, like, you know, there are moments like when he's, like, doing, when he's doing the written, you know, raging against the dying of the light speech and he's going to pass that test. you got to actually be in the character like he's a human being. And... Alan had to work really, really hard to get Rodney to feel comfortable displaying that vulnerability, um, and and so he did an amazing job of, of of achieving that and and letting Rodney be as funny as he always was, but still doing it within something that had a little bit more heart than what Rodney was used to. So so I think he's sort of an unsung hero of that film, um, and then you know the other the other person that I think made huge difference was was Harold Ramis right. because the original script was fine it was funny it was good but Harold Ramis came in very late in the game and and did a polish on it and a lot of the whole, the humor of it and the, the smartness of it really came out when, when Harold came in and, and did his past and I think that that's another person that people don't think of with that movie you know he Harold did a lot of huge things and everybody thinks of him in Ghostbusters and all that but but back to school, he deserves as much credit as anyone for really bringing out what that film could be. And 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 again, he was one of the sweetest, best, nicest people in the world. I mean, just a terrific, terrific human being who I am very sad is not with us anymore. I know it's a real shame. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie. It doesn't even involve Rodney; it involves you um, <laughs> in the lecture hall, sitting next to Edie McClure. Well, she's typing. Um, was was that like your like uh, authentic laugh, or do you like act? Or how, how was that? Because that that scene, you you nailed that scene perfectly. 
Well, thank you. I mean, that was something. It, 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 ultimately, I had to act it because by the time you're doing the 25th take, it was right. you know a different angle. You, it's not genuine anymore. But she really did crack me up. I mean, <laughs> that was something that happened in rehearsal. Okay. I didn't know that I was going to have that reaction, and then she was so funny and so wonderful, and I just really laughed in rehearsal. And then Alan Meadow, the director, said, "You know, that's good. I mean, that's kind of great. It's kind of an unexpected reaction." Maybe we should stay with that. So, I mean, which again is what a good director does, and that's what Alan did that was great. Was I just kind of cracked up in the rehearsal and thought, oh, that was kind of funny. I just cracked up, but I wasn't thinking, oh, let's do that in the scene. Right. And then Alan, as a director, was watching, going, wait a minute, that's more interesting than you just sitting there listening or looking. He said, you know, in a lot of the other scenes, you're annoyed with your dad, and you're, you know, it's kind of fun to see this another side of this character. And then I loved it. He said that, and then so we stuck with it. Um, and then, you know, then it's just acting technique where you're trying to find a way to keep yourself giggly for three and a half hours while you shoot it. <laughs> Which, you know, it, it's kind of hard at times. But, you know, those are two of the hardest things as an actor. Like, scenes where you have to cry and scenes where you have to laugh. Because somewhere along the line, that's not going to happen just naturally anymore. So you're kind of relying on just technical stuff to be doing it. Um, and finding new ways to crack yourself up at the same time or make yourself cry if that's what you're doing. Um, but, but that was just one of those wonderful things that happen and a lot of a lot of the best things that happen in any given movie or whatever is you know they're not the things you always need to be planned for and that was unplanned and it was just it just was something good and then you have a really good director who's smart enough to say hey let's let's not throw that away um and i and i feel that a lot of times when i'm directing even like the thing that i'm often most happy with whether it's an episode of a tv show or one of my own movies might have been something that that i didn't even think of until we were in the middle of shooting it yeah i mean like i i still crack up like the first time i saw it now the hundredth hundred plus it's it's a great scene uh now did he did Rodney like an ad lib at all any of those because a lot of or is it did he help with the script because a lot of it seemed like it's his own humor well certainly i mean he and 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 and, uh, and harold ramus you know, knew other well and, and and i i know that they worked together on the script Again, part of the brilliance of what Harold was able to do, because he's such a damn good writer, is that he could also write in Rodney's voice. Okay. He could write jokes that were perfect Rodney jokes. And, you, I mean, I don't know if anybody, I, I don't know if Rodney knew after a while what lines were his and what lines were <laughs> Harold's, because Harold was so adept at getting Rodney's sense of humor. Um, so I'm sure some of those lines, and I wasn't in those endless conversations I've had, and so I don't know which lines were Rodney's and which lines were Harold's, but I do know that Harold just, I mean, he could do Rodney, he could do Rodney's humor, he could tell a joke that wasn't a Rodney joke, but you would swear it was a Rodney joke. Um, so, so, and, and Rodney didn't add lib a lot, it was his style even as a comedian, and Rodney was one of those, Rodney was a real crafts person, I mean, he was part of a very different era of comedy, you know, much more than like, you know, there's a whole era that I grew up with of the Robin Williamses and the and the Billy Crystals and people who were like, you know, uh, brilliant ad-libbers and were brilliant and sort of just, they didn't know what was going to happen. And that was a whole amazing thing of its own. But Rodney was part of an era where his act was really finely honed and the timing and exactly what word to use. And and and, and that was really more, it doesn't mean he would never ad-lib. I mean, if he thought of something funny, we might add it to a scene, but but he would like to work out every beat ahead of time. And in fact, in rehearsals, it was really, it was funny because he was so not used to rehearsing 
things that weren't jokes that were more again scenes between a father and a son and he would get all hung up on like well you know, and, and I'd be working with him and the director and he'd be saying well is, is he going to be on my right side or my left side and he's right now like what side is he going to be on and, and the director would be like I don't, I don't know Rodney we're sitting in a hotel room I mean like, we have to wait until we get to the set to know he's like well it's going to be very different like what do I do with my body language if he's on the left side or and, and it was so funny because that's how that's how meticulous he would be about you know he was thinking about like well what hand am I going to gesture with and and that could be a brilliant thing but it also could be challenging when you're trying to do a more naturalistic scene between two people because you want to think out every single thing at a time and sometimes that's not the best way to do a scene that isn't just about a joke so again Alan as a director had to walk up by the line of not taking away what Now, I have to ask before we go, uh, two more roles, uh, both, I think, cult movies. Um, Combat High. I mean, it's, it's been years since I saw it. It's like one of those things I can't can ever find you in uh, George Clooney. you have any fond memories about that role? You're one of about a lot of people in the world who's actually seen that. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's really funny. Uh, Jamie Farr, right, was in that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, do, you, do you have any good memories about making that movie? <laughs> oh, a ton of great movies. First of all, I mean, uh, again, I mean, Clooney was like the greatest guy in the world. Um, you know, this was before Clooney was Clooney. And he was like the most sweet. I mean, he still is, by the way. I, 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 don't, I mean, we're not in close touch, but every time I've ever run into him or talked to him, I mean, he's like just, he is a, a truly nice person. Right. He's in a position in life where, you know, a lot of people would have been turned weird and soured and strange by fame and he's just not he's like just a he's just a great guy and he was tremendous fun to work with and and Wally Ward who played my best friend went on to play the lead in the chocolate war and you know we you know so we he and I really is off which is you know it was a great thing so it was really a fun movie I really enjoyed the person that people I worked with and you know and I hadn't done a lot of flat out work comedy where I got I mean I had you know I had done things more where I would be off in the street like in Back to School, I right, was a straight, straight man right. for, 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 for uh, Rodney and for Robert Downey and for, you know, it was sort of fun to be the one who was the more crazy one. And that was, you know, very enjoyable. And, you know, I actually really had a good time. And, and, and you know, it's one of those films that nobody's ever seen. And it was like on NBC and I think they ran it like against some huge other sh- series so that like the ratings were below, like I, they were barely measurable. Um, but but it was really it was a blast to do. That was a job that I took, frankly, going in thinking, oh, I need a gig, I need to pay the rent, and I ended up having a really good time. I mean, sometimes that does happen in life where you take something because you need a job, and then you end up going, well, I'm really glad did that. I, I really had fun, and I met people that I like, and you know, and Wally ended up being the lead in my first film, and and you know, uh, it was it was a really good experience. Yeah, and that was like Jamie was really was also really a great guy. Really, right. it was funny. That was my Jamie Farr was one of my first experiences too of the difference between movie stars and TV stars, and how in some ways it's much harder to be a TV star because people, I guess, because you're in their living rooms, feel like they've got complete access to you. Like I worked in movies, I'd been around people like Michael Keane or Andy Dickinson or whatever, and 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 people would want their autographs or whatever, but they'd be a little scared to go over to them. There'd be a little sense of ooh, they're like this movie star. I better not, you know. Whereas with Jamie Farr, because he was like a TV guy for MASH, it's like if I was having a meal with him, people would just come over and like sit down at the table. <laughs> strangers would come over and like right. sit down and start talking like, and they didn't ask him if it was okay. And it was a really interesting thing to see that just there was a different psychology with a TV star. Oh, that's got to be hard. You know, that just people feel like they own you. They feel like they know you and like you're part of their house. So 
they're going to just treat you like, you know, you don't get a say in whether, in whether they're now part of your life, too. And it was an interesting, I never sort of really observed that until doing that movie and, and being around him. Right, and that was like the age of like every, every all the big three networks would turn out a TV movie a week or a miniseries and and have like stars from all the you know their shows participate. You don't you don't have that anymore on TV. No, yeah, that the TV movie thing has really kind of gone away. It's it, it, but it's been replaced again by much more interesting things. I think you know cable is still let in. Right. You know there are movies made for cable, but now the limited series has become a, a big thing again. And I think limited series are great. Yeah, so do I. I think that's a wonderful story format because you can go into so much more detail, and you don't have to go out for years and years and years. But over six episodes or eight episodes or ten episodes, you can really get into the characters and into the into the story in a deep way. It's like reading a novel, you know, as opposed to a short story. And so I, that's a great format. And that's kind of, I think, taken over some of what, you know, movies and, and network miniseries used to do. Yeah, and you're able to get a, the bigger stars to do the limited series because it's, like you said, limited. <laughs> sure, oh yeah, it's a Look at look at the people that got to do Big Little Lies right, or exactly. whatever. You know, it's really one thing to go to those people and say, "Hey, you want to take five months out of your life and come do this?" It's another thing if you want to take five months out of your life and then maybe have to contractually come back for seven more years. You know, your chance of getting those people, you know, but those people that do the one season thing is much higher. Now, look, Clooney is doing Catch Twenty Two, right? And, and again, but it's a limited series. It's a one. It's, it's a one-time experience. So it gives you, I, I would, you know, as an actor, it's, it's the perfect thing because you can go further and deeper into a character than you might normally, but you're but you're not signing up for seven years of your life for it. And I so I feel like you're going to continue to see, you know, I don't think there's any movie star in the world who wouldn't do a limited series if it's the right role and the thing that they find exciting. Right. You look at, you know, uh, Matt McConaughey and Woody Harrelson in the first season of True Detective. I mean, you wouldn't think either one of those guys would do a limited series, but yeah, they did. Well, because for an actor, you know, the thing that an actor is so frustrating is that often, you know, in a regular movie, you just don't have time to dig into the characters right. more. You know, in a regular movie, you got 90 minutes to tell a whole story. So a lot of the character stuff is often kind of shorthand. And it's, you know, you kind of, good actors, what they'll do is they'll flesh it out so much that you'll get the sense of who that character is more, even though you don't have enough time to really explore it. But something like the Detective, which was part of what made that show so great, you could really take the time to get into those two guys' heads. And so actors, that's what an actor wants to do. An actor wants to get inside the character and really explore it. So I, I think, you know, I think that I can completely see why you get great actors doing that. And I, I think you're going to get, I think limited series is going to really break down a lot of any, any tiny bit of a remaining wall between movies and TV is going to completely go away because I just don't know any really good actor who wouldn't be delighted to have the chance to terrific character and have eight hours to explore them instead of 90 minutes. Yeah, and before I let you go, I'm going to ask you about uh, Legends of Billie Jean, <laughs> another another cult classic, uh, you and Helen Slater. Um, you enjoy making that one as well? Uh, I did. It was it was a lot of fun. The character was a lot of fun. You know, uh, I've been lucky to work with really nice people, and it was, you know, it was... My only frustration with that one and had nothing to do with the actual filmmaking process. The original script when I read it had a little bit more sense of humor about itself. Okay. Um, it was a little bit more a movie that was appealing to kids but also to grunt. It was, it was a little tongue-in-cheek. You know, because on some level, you know, it was a whole movie about a, a motor scooter. 
and and mm-hmm. like as if it was the most important social issue of our time. Right. <laughs> and the script I read felt like it was a little bit more of a satire and a little bit more of a playful look at teen movies and sort of you know teen rebellion and and as we were making it there was I think pressure from the studio to make it more of no this isn't this isn't a, a satire of a teen movie it really is just a teen movie and so I felt like there was a shift as we were doing the film away from what I thought was going to be more kind of a playful movie into something that was more just a story. And that didn't really affect the day-to-day of working with Helen or working with Christian or working with any of the people on it. Or, But I did feel in the end that the, the, the plot, we'd get these rewrites and these changes would happen. I just thought, oh, it's kind of getting more normal in a way that I think is less interesting. Um, and so that, that one I've always felt a little was too bad um, because I feel like it's still fun but when I read the script the first time and when I first met with the director when I first, it was I thought a kind of more slightly more interesting project and then it got a little bit uh, homogenized out as, as the process went on yeah and it's funny because like you know H- Helen played Supergirl I think the year before but she was really like a superhero in that movie <laughs> Oh, sure. And I think that that was part of maybe what the idea for casting her came from is that she had that sort of stupid thing that everybody knew kind of came with her. Um, but she's a, I mean, she's a lovely actress. She's really good. And she was a really sweet person. You know, very, I mean, again, very easy, very, you know, there was not a lot of stress with her ever. Um, just kind of just sweet. And I mean, I wanted to work with her. I actually cast her in a movie that never got made as a director. I mean, talking about again about working with actors you work with, and you know, there's a film I was trying to make in in the uh, going to be my second film after after Chocolate War, and uh, you know, she was going to be the female lead, and, and the funny thing part at the last second, and I was really never got to make it. And you know, but I, that's how much I liked her and how much I thought of her her talent was that I really wanted the chance to work with her again, and I'm, I'm sorry that we haven't had that. Right. But Keith, this was so much fun tonight. I enjoyed talking to you about movies, TV, your whole career. And uh, good luck with everything. Well, thank you. And I was delighted to have the time. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I will look forward to, to hearing, hearing from you next time. And a special thanks to Keith for joining me today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel19. Be sure to like the page Reliving My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. You can find the show on SoundCloud. You can find it on Podbean. A new episode of Reliving My Youth comes out every Wednesday. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. Can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon. <laughs>